Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. The Other People podcast is offered freely. All episodes of this show are available free of charge. If you would like to support this program, you can do so at Patreon dot com slash other ppl pod that's patreon.com slash other ppl pod thank you you are not alone you have found other people you and i have a friend in common every stupid thing that a writer could do i've done i think it's really beautiful what a struggle you know it was incredible you know it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there and now here's your host, Brad Listing. Just one person and just okay, one so time. Thank you. Uh, hey, everybody. How's it going? Thank you. Welcome to the Other People Podcast. I'm Brad Listy. I'm here in Los Angeles. I'm joined by my dog, Twiggy. Twiggy, uh, can you say hello? Jonathan Ames is my guest today. He's uh, He's here, or he was here. It was good to talk to him. It was good to finally meet him. I feel like we have like just missed each other over the years or something, or I feel like we have a lot of friends in common. His name pops up. It's one of those things. And, uh, finally got the chance to meet him and, uh, to talk to him a little bit. It was exciting. We had a good conversation that's coming up in just a second. He has a new novel out called you were never really here. Uh, perhaps you've heard of this. It's available from vintage and it was also, uh, just made into a motion picture starring Joaquin Phoenix. You were never really here. So Jonathan Ames in just a second. I do want to read some mail. A listener named Chelsea says, Hey Brad, like you, I had an unfavorable response to CBD when I really hoped it was nature's miracle. A cure for all that ails me, like so many people told me it would be, including my mom. What I expected? Blissful sleep, all pain gone, and the eradication of lifelong anxiety and mild depression. Here's what I actually got after six days of spraying a low dose of that crap on my tongue. I couldn't sleep at all. I had a headache in the middle of my forehead that never went away, and I felt sick to my stomach. The weird part? I had the energy of a teenager, and my back pain went away. Signed, Chelsea. Yeah, I'm sort of getting over this idea that there's any miracle cure in this world. There's no fast-forward button. There's no quick fix. At least not for me. I can't imagine that... I'm going to take something and it's going to like fix me in a snap, or I'm going to go down to Peru. I'm going to do ayahuasca. I'm going to have a breakthrough. I don't think it's, I don't think that's in the cards for me. Maybe the fact that I think that precludes me from having that experience. Maybe you need to believe 
in order for it to happen. It's hard for me to get there. I think people want to believe stuff, you know? Human beings are hardwired for that. We just so desperately want to believe there are, there are answers out there, and especially easy answers or neat and tidy answers. It doesn't work like that in my experience. It seems like it's slow going. It's day after day after day, moment after moment. There's a lot of humiliation. There's a lot of failure. You just got to keep trying. Take some CBD. <laughs> just rub that oil wherever it just, you know, whatever you got to do, drop it in your tea. A listener named Soon writes, Dear Brad, I'm a longtime listener. I recently decided to delete my Twitter account for a couple of reasons. However, you should know that the only thing that gave me pause was that I would no longer get to see pictures of Twiggy or the Thai restaurant. All the best, Soon. So, uh, for those of you who are not aware, uh, you know, on the Twitter feed for this podcast, at other PPL, that's the handle, at other PPL, I tweet... Uh, on a mostly daily basis, a photo of my dog. And prior to getting the dog, I would tweet, back when I had uh, the office job, I would tweet a photo from this Thai restaurant that I ate at pretty much every single day. Creature of habit. And it just became this kind of routine for me. To go to lunch, I would take a photo from my table. I always ate alone. I like that. I like the solitude. I like having, you know, a break in the middle of the day. And uh, it became sort of a tradition on the Twitter feed. And then uh, once that ended and uh, we got the dog, I started to tweet a photo of Twiggy every day. Hashtag uh, daily Twiggy. Partially just out of boredom, but also because I feel like with so much bad news and so much anger and rage and discontent and hurt and, you know, outrage, all of it on Twitter. I was like, here's a, like a photo of a puppy. And people seem to appreciate that. You can't go wrong with a photo of a puppy. So, uh, you know, that's what I've been doing. I'm not, I don't do it every day, but most days. And interestingly, and I kind of feel bad about this. I have not gone back to that Thai restaurant in uh, months. It just sort of ended like one day. Like I was there every day. I knew those people. We, 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 you know, it was always very friendly. They took a picture of me. It's one of those restaurants where they like take a picture and like they put it on the wall. If you're a regular, I had my picture on the wall. Like the, uh, the, one of the waitresses went back to Bangkok and like sent, like got me a gift. Like some shot glasses. <laughs> you know, it's one of those things. I feel bad that I haven't gone in there and explained my absence, but then there's also a part of me sort of enjoys like the fact that there's now mystery. They, do, do they think I vanished? It's almost better that they are left with the uh, mystery, I think. <laughs> I live in infamy. They're going to make like a, like a six part Netflix documentary about me called the, the man who ate here. I was actually tweeting about that the other day. I, I was tweeting that I, I want to do something with my life that somehow merits the creation of a six, uh, like a six part Netflix documentary that, uh, everyone will binge watch over the course of about 48 hours and then almost immediately forget. Which seems like a, a new phenomenon. I do that. I like binge watch 
some sort of crime documentary thing, be completely invested in it, wrapped up, absorbed, watch it, forget about it immediately. That's what I want for my life. Hey, everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. My guest is Jonathan Ames. His new book is called You Were Never Really Here. It is now a critically acclaimed major motion picture starring Joaquin Phoenix. I feel like I should add that uh, Jonathan Ames also makes television. He created the show Bored to Death. He also created the show Blunt Talk. Perhaps you've seen those. He's a multi-talented individual. Very pleased to have him here. One more time, the book is called You Were Never Really Here, available now from Vintage. Here he is, ladies and gentlemen. This is Jonathan Ames. Yeah, that's something that I've been sort of realizing now with the release of this new book and and the movie that's come out, just how uh, I've been jumping around like like a flea, (laughs) like a flea trying to pay the bills and have a good time and meet people and make things. But yeah, I've done like a number of things and, and I'm sure you can identify and all the people out there is one is always hounded like a, a shadow by insecurity. Like, I mean, a guy in college... I don't know what you're talking about. Okay, well... You, <laughs> I, kid, I kid. No, I know. I just met you, but... And, yeah, you, we're all so madly insecure. These, this is the demon. We have these voices in our mind that are so unkind that we all have to manage to greater or lesser degree. And anyway, some guy in college who I really looked up to, this graduate student told me I wasn't a natural writer. And my grammar was terrible. I didn't understand the sentence until I actually was teaching composition in my late 20s at a business school. And I'd published a first novel. And I remember the editor saying, this is a run-on sentence. This is a run-on sentence. But they made sense to me. I'm like, well, you know. Anyway, so, you know, for 30, 40 years, I haven't felt like a natural writer because that guy said it. And I really looked up to him. He was. A, he had gone to Harvard. He was a bit effete, but he he was one of these people that could declare things, you right, know, like right. an Oscar Wilde. What's he doing now? <laughs> well, sadly, he did pass away. But oh. and I also really admired him. But um, a- anyway, but I'm like, holy cow! I've been surviving as a writer for 29 years now. My first book came out in 1989. That's a long time. I mean, a 29 year old person is like mature. My career is 29 years old. 
but that's because I'm, you know, I'm getting old myself or whatever. Yeah, as are we all, you know. I know, it's really, it's, uh, you, you've heard that it would happen and then it actually happens. Like, yeah, like I, I have this moment, not terribly frequently, but every mm. once in a while you stop and you just go, ah, oh, youth. Like I'll mm. see young people mm -hmm. or I'll have some, some mm. smell or mm. some, you know, mm. sensory experience will bring mm. me back and you're just like, it's gone. Mm. It's sad. <laughs> yeah, well, I find I do want to go to bed earlier. Um, anyway, let's not get onto this depressing topic. <laughs> but I, I don't want to... Actually, that's controlling. If you want to continue exploring, no, 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 no. I could tell you my various ailments. Uh, here's a question I have for you regarding doing a lot of different things and, and jumping around like a flea or mm -hmm. whatever it is. It, the, the, the decisions that you've made and the projects that you've taken on and, uh, you know, whether it's in television or writing, uh, essays or writing fiction mm. or, mm. uh, writing, uh, in a comedic vein or mm. writing in a more, uh, you know, a crime or genre vein, mm -hmm. like how do you make those decisions? Are they largely instinctive? Are you, uh, you know, are they an outgrowth of conversations you're having with, mm. uh, creative collaborators or somebody mm. who's a trusted confidant? Like, how mm. do you, how do you make the choices that you have made? Yeah. I mean, I remember years ago, um, some guy interviewing me and uh, I think it was probably like 2004 when my, my, my novel wake up, sir came out. And, uh, and when he interviewed me, he, he made it seem as if I must've had a master plan for everything. Like that I would have this book come out at this time. And I think I was about to shoot a TV pilot and there's been no master plan. It's, it's been, I feel like improvisation every step of the way it's almost like walking along and finding like a penny on the ground and you pick it up i mean obviously things would lead to it like this latest vein of writing pulp fiction and writing a thriller that was in some ways uh, you know several like i i wrote you were never really here this most recent book originally in 2012 but for about four or five years at that point, I'd been reading nonstop only crime novels and page turners. And before that, I had a long fascination with Raymond Chandler and Dashiell Hammett. And, and then I got an op opportunity from Byliner, uh, which was a w web magazine at the time, for a nice word count and a nice fee to write a piece of long-form fiction. And I'm like, you know what? I'm going to write a thriller. So it wasn't like I had been planning for months or or made this choice suddenly an opportunity arose and then and i'd been reading all these novels by richard stark these crime novels and so then i i took my whack at it you, you know so it feels like things accrue you know a reading or things i'm interested in and then maybe an opportunity arises then you go for it like back in the 90s um my second novel, The Extra Man, had been rejected by about 20 publishers. And I was brokenhearted. And I, and I was going to uh, give up on writing. Um, this woman uh, who was studying Zen Buddhism at the time said to me, whatever you hold on to will cause you pain. You know, the, the notion of attachment. And I thought, you know what? I'm holding on to the dream of being a writer. I've got, and it's causing me pain. I've got to let go of this dream. So I made a list of other things to do. And then the number four was... Revise the novel one more time, <laughs> The Extra Man. And around that time, as I began to let go of the dream of being a writer, I did start feeling better. You know, I'm like, okay, I will make something of my life. But a friend very kindly took part of the novel 
to an editor at the New York Press and read some of it to him out loud. And the editor at the New York Press said, I'll publish that. They got in touch with me. And so suddenly I took a piece of my novel out, kind of turned it into nonfiction and had a piece published in the New York Press and had published something for the first time in years. I really struggled between my first and second book. So then I developed a relationship with the New York Press, which was this free paper, late 90s New York, kind of pre-internet, an alternative free paper. They were publishing all sorts of weird stuff. And I published a few pieces with them. And then I saw that the big thing in that paper was to have a column. And I asked, could I have a column? And at first they said no. And then they came back to me and said yes. So then suddenly for three years... I, every two weeks, I wrote a column. You know, I got paid, I think, 250 bucks a column. It was a main way I sustained myself in the late 90s, along with teaching. And so then suddenly I had a nonfiction career, writing these columns. And then magazines came to me because of what they had read in those columns. And then I collected those into books. So these choices, they're just unusual in a way, well, or, yeah. or, or lucky. You stumble into but you got to know luck when it comes along. Like, you know what I'm saying? You have to find the penny. Yeah. And you got to just keep putting stuff out there. You, you know, so by putting the columns out there, that led to magazine work. And then, and then, you, you know, and just, and then I wrote a short story at some point called Bored to Death uh, for Esquire magazine. And they didn't go for it. They, you know, they didn't want to run it. It was too long. So then I, I sent it to McSweeney's and they said, we'll go for it. And then around that time, even though it's, I'm jumping all over the place, I'd sort of given up on ever making in Hollywood. I had this failed TV pilot in 2004. But then someone at HBO wanted to meet me just in a general meeting. And I hadn't done a Hollywood meeting for a while, but I had this story, Bored to Death, which wasn't going to be published yet. But I gave it to the executive, and, and I said, I think there could be a movie or TV show in this. And then she's like, yeah, so then I develop it. So you know what I mean? Like the, like now, of course, I'm getting these opportunities and people are wanting to meet me over the years or a friend brings my stuff to the guy at New York Press. But it, it was, it's not been some grand plan. It's been like uh, rock climbing, you well, know, when yeah. you rock climb, you're like, okay, there's a crevice. I'll put my hand up there. And then sometimes your hand falls out. So I feel like that's how it's happened. Well, and I think from the outside looking in, the tendency when someone has some success, especially in a career um, as perilous as the arts, mm. the tendency is to want to believe that it was a linear path to the mountaintop, mm. if there is even a mountaintop, mm. or that there was some sort of like, you know, grand strategic thinking that went into mm. it. But really, it's like working hard, knowing an opportunity when it comes along, being willing to risk, being willing to be flexible. Because some people, I think, have very rigid and defined ideas about who they are creatively and what they're going to do. And you seem like somebody who, when somebody's been like, you want to try this? You said yes. Yeah, yeah. And and it's scary, too. You know, when I, I had never written a script, like in 2004. But I got an opportunity. Again, here's like an interesting one. Again, I feel like there's probably a lot of writers who listen to your podcast and beginning writers. So and beginning performers. So in the early 90s, I used to do these shows in New York at a nightclub called The Fez. And I was struggling to write, but I, I had found that when I spoke in front of a crowd, they laughed. It happened. I had gone to some AA meetings and I would talk about my life and everyone would laugh. I was like, wait, this is upsetting stuff. Don't, you know? <laughs> but then I was like, okay, well, maybe I'll just go on stage. And so I began to perform starting in 92 at this nightclub called The Fez. And I had my own little 
underground following that filled this nightclub and i do model why have i heard of the fez is it like a famous place it was a well-known place it it was open for about 13 years it was on lafayette street it was underneath the time cafe the charles mingus band would play there on thursday nights i began working the door there which is how uh, anyways long story but i began performing there working the door there jeff buckley that's kind of one of the places where he began to be known was playing there and and so I would put on these shows and I would tell stories kind of like Spalding Gray, these monologues, and I kept hoping to be discovered, you know, and I never was, of course. But then about 12 years later, after performing there, and I had performed there for about a decade, a woman who used to come to my show in like 93, 94, had become a booker on the Letterman show, gave Letterman one of my books to read. He liked it, mentions it because he was a voracious reader. And he, and he said to her, thank you for that book. And she goes, well, you know, maybe you should have him on. He's really funny. So Letterman began to have me on in 2003 as kind of a, an eccentric at the end, you know, for five minutes. Right. And sometimes he would have David Sedaris and David Rakoff and had me on. And because I was on Letterman, in a sense, that gave me a chance when I came out to L.A., Someone was like, I think there's a TV show in my collection, my nonfiction. Right. So the first thing I pitched out in Hollywood was a TV show called What's Not to Love. And and I pitched it saying it would be a poor man's curb your enthusiasm. But I said, literally, I'm poor. So as, as opposed to Larry David, who was quite wealthy. So again, like something I was doing in 93 uh, bore fruit in 2003, 2004 with Letterman. So I, I always would tell my writing students that, you know, that you just put stuff out there. You don't know how it's going to come back to you or when. Right. And what was it like to meet? letterman on the set i mean and people are famously mm-hmm. talking like he doesn't talk to you during commercials and it's like you know you, you feel sort of odd sitting there and then mm-hmm. suddenly he's on like what did you have any kind of like warm exchange with him did you feel a sense of connect because i i grew up in indiana mm-hmm. like not far from where letterman grew up mm-hmm. and i've always felt like uh i don't know he was a big figure in my youth and i felt like a sense of connection to him mm-hmm. uh and a sense of reverence like, i always loved david letterman mm-hmm. but He's a difficult character. Like, did you have a sense of who he really is or any kind of... Um, I would say yes, in that he was very warm to me. And I think, you know, maybe he liked the the nuts that would come on his show, maybe more than the Hollywood stars or something. And so, and maybe he knew that people like me would be extra nervous. I mean, I remember being in my little dressing room just nervous as hell you know and then you're in the wing of the thing and there was like some older fellow going okay go on now and sort of push me in the butt and i'd walk out and i felt like you know i was having a hypoglycemic reaction and then there i am shaking his hand and i'm live on tv and talking about my balding pattern and his balding pattern and and then also yeah the way you would prep for it is they're like okay and i think they would call me on the phone the day before here are the questions dave might ask and or and and then or maybe with the person I would come up with some funny stories and then they'd be like all right here are the questions he might ask this will trigger these stories that we've discussed or he might not ask any of these questions or he might ask them in a completely different order so it was like be ready to wing it and be prepared it was like this weird mix and uh he just seemed to get a kick out of me and in the commercial break I remember he was really warm to me and then I think one time my parents came and they got to sit at his desk and have their picture taken. And oh, wow. I was on like three times. So, yeah, he was very kind to me. That's um, great. And, uh, but yeah, so that was, 
you know, that was a fun experience. A long time ago now. feels like it happened to another person. Well, yeah. and when was that? That was in the... uh, 2003, 2004, so like 14 years ago. Yeah, it's weird. Like, uh, I, I can think to myself, well, that's not that long ago, but that actually isn't. I know, it's I know. almost 20 years ago. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you come to Los Angeles. You've never done TV. But you had these Letterman appearances. That sort of stuff can really help. You know, it can yeah. help you get in the door and people say, okay, well, this guy's right. somebody. Or, you well, know. Letterman has said he's funny. Right. Because everyone, you know, we all, you know, we all are, especially certain, the people who make these money decisions, they, you know, they, it's a little bit like blurbs in the book business. It's like, okay, someone else has said this is good. I'll believe it's good too, maybe. Or it just reassures them or confirms their own intuition. Or it gives them something to tell their boss. Mm -hmm. Well, he was on Letterman. (laughs) Yeah, and we left a tape and they liked the pitch. And so, yeah, this was 2004. And then I got commissioned to write my first pilot. I didn't have final draft, but I quickly got it and, uh, you know, took a swing at it. And we did shoot that pilot in which I played myself, but it, it didn't work out. I guess my standard line, you know, I didn't play myself very well. (laughs) (laughs) Lack of self knowledge and self awareness has always been an issue. Well, it's, but it's hard. I mean, just to get through the hoop to get to where the pilot is shot. Cause I've made some rounds with Hollywood meetings and, you know, gotten into the pilot stage and it's, it's also precarious and it can seem mysterious it still is a little bit mysterious to me how these decisions are actually made. It, it seems like timing's got to be right. Yeah. It seems like, the, you know, you got to show up right when they're looking for a certain kind of thing, or yeah. you got to, or you got to be really good in the room. Yeah. I would imagine doing that live show in New York and being on Letterman, especially, that had to have prepared you well to be in the room pitching yourself. Yeah, I I've been uh, I think a good pitcher because um, I. I become a performer in the room. I also used to be a teacher. And so both being a performer and a teacher when pitching things in Hollywood is helpful because on one hand you're having to quickly educate them in a coherent way and then you want to perform and be amusing. So it's a, an interesting mix. So I've had some really good luck pitching, I have to say. But in terms of getting things made and... Um, I refer to it once and I'm quoting myself as kind of a Swiss clock of luck so it's got to like move as beautifully as a swiss clock all these pieces coming together but like you said the timing the moment and it all has to sort of come together it's kind of incredible i mean like for me with like bored to death i mean it it came together like a swiss clock and yet so much luck involved who was the who who at hbo championed you just this executive that you met with but was it the reason I ask is that, like, in my head, I sometimes think, well, it's got to be somebody who's got transactional power, like somebody who mm. can actually press the green light button. Or was mm. it somebody who just championed you to the person who had the green light button under their control? It was someone who championed me to the to the person with their finger on the green light button. And there is like, an, there, actual, there's an actual green light button. <laughs> like, if you go into the room, and there's a red button and a green button. It's like that game Simon or something. Um the person I went to, now she'll get deluged with emails perhaps, was Sarah Condon at HBO. And I, I owe so much to her. And she had been an executive at HBO, but now she, but then she became someone who had like a producing deal at HBO. And they gave her a New York office and she could and bring things first to HBO. But if they didn't want them, she could take them elsewhere. But she had worked at HBO for like a decade. And uh-huh. now she was kind of... You, you know, um, still part of HBO, but also free. It's interesting combination. 
And uh, so, and she was just meeting writers. And does anyone have anything in their desk drawer? This was back in 2007. And I almost missed the meeting because I had, I had told the Hollywood people I'd gotten involved with, don't, you don't have to send me on any more meetings because sort of what you were talking about. And this one comedy writer had once told me about L.A. and Hollywood, a million meetings, no deals. Right. You know, and I would come out here, stay in a motel, have MapQuest, drive all over, meet with really intelligent people, and nothing would happen. And it, I would, But it would feel good. Sometimes yeah. the meetings, you're like, oh, that was great. I really like that person. And then mm. you never hear from them. Well, they meetings. were <laughs> usually really like book readers. You know, they love books, a lot of these people. And, these, and so nothing happened. And so after about two years of coming out here every few months, like a, some kind of migrating bird, um, <laughs> I gave up on it. And I hadn't done any meetings for a year. But then I get this call. There's someone in New York who wants to meet me where I was living at the time. I thought, all right, well, I said no meetings, <laughs> you know, but so I'll go. And then this particular day, I was out late with my girlfriend at the time and it was probably pretty hungover. And I literally, I mean, it sounds old fashioned. I slept through the time, woke up. It was a hot New York day. I thought, you know, I'm not going to go. And I thought, oh, screw it, go. And I called, got there about 45 minutes late dripping sweat, major subway ride. I was way uptown, you know, north of Columbia, had to get to Midtown. And then that turned out to be the meeting that probably changed my life. Right. You, you know, that brings me to my next question is that like, once you get one, it does get easier in Hollywood, like to get at least some access or to have people take you more seriously. Like he's done it before. Mm -hmm. Oh, oh, certainly. I mean, it's like any profession, but you also have to climb the mountain every time. No one's just going to hand anything to you. Um, and, and you've got to be passionate about it and you've really got to believe it yourself. So if you can't just get in there and be like, okay, could you write me a check and I'll kind of write you a script maybe about something I sort of like, right. no, they, that's, they're in that position because they can sniff out whether or not you're authentically interested and, and so you, you've got to actually believe in it, whatever it is you're trying to sell. And how do you feel about the current, uh, environment where there's so much content, mm -hmm. there's so much, there's so many TV shows. There's so, you can't keep up, yeah. uh, like to be a creator in that environment. Like, do you view that through a positive lens or do you see it as a glut or? Yeah. You know, I, and it, it, might, it probably might come across as arrogant, and I'm not necessarily arrogant. And the word arrogant backwards is tenagora. For some reason, so I, I like to say words backwards, like listy is itzel, yeah. brad is darb, desk right. is kased, microphone <laughs> is inachba orkim, couch is hikuach, coffee is ifafak. Anyway, <laughs> so I got caught up on the word arrogant for a moment. But I have never been a TV watcher. I ended up in TV because I was like struggling to make it as a novelist and I had an, and I was a performer and you know, I was drawn to it. Every, so many prose writers have come on, William Faulkner wrote scripts, you know, Fitzgerald, they all have taken a swing. And, um, and my hero, Donald Westlake, you know, wrote any wrote scripts. So I guess, um, Oh, I've totally lost my train of thought. What was the, Oh, I so I don't watch TV. And I didn't even have a TV when I had Bored to Death. Actually, HBO got wind that I didn't have a TV because I couldn't watch my own show. So they got me a TV, which was really nice. And and I still don't watch TV, but I am aware that there is so much stuff out there. I, I still just like to read books at night. I'm a book person. I think of my... And, and what I most enjoy writing are books. Now, I do think that there's so much out there that it is overwhelming. 
Um, and right now I'm sort of been out of TV for, well, my show Blunt Talk I had got canceled December, 2016. I got involved with this other thing. We actually shot a pilot. I wrote a bunch of scripts. Didn't happen. It was a really fun concept. I, I adapted an Icelandic TV show called world's end and it was all about an asylum where the inmates take over. And I, the spirit I tried to bring to it was, uh, that French film, um, King of hearts, which is a very whimsical take on insanity. Anyway, after that, I haven't worked in TV for a year now, and I've just been, well, for six months, I, I just was kind of staggering around in a stupor uh, after three years of <laughs> Which not, has its merits. You know? Yeah, yeah. no, you have to be confused to move into clarity, then back into confusion. It's just, you know, a rolling stone of confusion, clarity, but mostly it's just all confusion. I, I don't know that there's ever clarity. Anyway, I started writing prose again in December. Uh, I'm writing a sequel to You Were Never Really Here. So I'm not, I never think in terms of TV, like, oh, this would be a good TV show because I'm not involved in watching the medium or what's pleasing. Now I did watch Game of Thrones, but I got tired of waiting what would happen. So I read all the books and, and I love the show, but I love the books even more. Um, it's, that, a weird, it's a weird show because I find it confusing mm -hmm. and yet I keep watching it. I don't know like everyone's names and I'm like, what mm -hmm. the hell's going on? But I can't stop watching it. And you know, oh, they have great actors great sets everyone's so serious there's uh, such high stakes involved yeah. sexy people i mean there's a lot of fun <laughs> stuff you how know? much how much does an episode of game of thrones cost to shoot I, I would say let's see it's 60 minutes i would i bet 50, maybe 20 million dollars 15 to 20 million dollars per episode yeah wow i think i i could be wrong i'd be curious if anyone out there knew but i it, I, I feel like for the production value and they're like usually shooting in Iceland on the tip of a volcano or right. something, <laughs> you know, uh, they got to feed all those people, you know, I, I feel like it's, and, and the crazy thing is that there've been so many illegal downloads of that show. Like, so they've made a ton of money, but then they've so much of it, you know, they didn't make with all these illegal downloads, I guess. But anyway, I preferred the book. So in terms of this glut of television, um, I and and then what Netflix is doing, it does seem like a lot of quality things are being made, and no one even knows, knows about it. Right, and it's just, I mean, like Obama's got a talk show. I mean, and I'm not watching it. I and I again, I have Netflix. I don't really know how to use it. I, I'm I'm a technophobe, so I'm like paying every month for Netflix, but. Every time I try to stream something, like I don't like the little controller and I can't fast forward as efficiently. So I still like to just channel surf. It's, I'm so pathetic. Yeah. I, yeah. It's, I, I just find myself overwhelmed. Like what are the choices? And then the other problem with me is the only time I really have a chance to sit down and focus and watch anything is at night and I fall asleep. Yeah. And I, I, and I don't know if you identify with this, but as an artist and it's somewhat self-centered to go along with being arrogant is... I don't want to give over my consciousness to someone else for such an extended period of time. And so passively as you do when you watch TV and so don't anyone out there, don't watch my shows, but they're <laughs> half hours of they're like, you know, they're kind of like, I've been taking these chewable multivitamins called smarty pants or something. They're so good. I, I, I just want to eat them all day, but I control myself because they have fiber and you shouldn't eat too many of them. Right, right. But I highly recommend this brand of multivitamin. I think they're called smarty pants. So my little half-hour comedies, if you watch Bored to Death or Blunt Talk, which I don't even think is out there because of strange Hollywood Machiavellian reasons, maybe it's on Amazon. Um, 
but I, I don't mind giving over my consciousness to books because I still feel like I'm learning from books, like how to craft. If I'm writing, reading science fiction, like part of me is curious, how did they do it? If I'm reading a thriller, how does a thriller writer create a page turner? So part of me is engaged. And then I also still feel that the act of reading is a more interesting act than the act of watching a TV show or a movie. Um, because reading, you're creating the film in your head and you're you're engaging more and as opposed to maybe passively sitting there which is why you fall asleep you know i mean people fall asleep when reading too but it's supposed to be good for you right before you go to bed like listening to classical music's good for infants like it's supposed to be good for the human brain to read before it does the... feel good yeah if like it, well, it really... calms you down you shouldn't be looking at your phone the glowing electric thing of course i hate my phone as we all do but i'm addicted to it i wake up at 5 a.m i reach for it like a nipple <laughs> and i hate the damn phone me too but i'm on it i'm on it like a teething baby that's what they want they I designed it they designed jerks. it yeah <laughs> and and uh, and they might be as deadly as cigarettes probably look they're they've fractured everyone's consciousness and the country's gone completely mad and i was trying to think the only way to take solace with what's happening politically in the country and i imagine this is you know, I was going to say you have a right wing uh, listenership, but no, I, but <laughs> is that there have been mad kings before, you know, in plays and in classic literature. So hopefully you, this is a classic thing that's happened. A mad, you know, des, uh, king who probably has no right to the throne is on the throne. And I don't know what's going to happen, but I blame telephones as part of it because they've made us they've fractured how we receive news they've divided us i i don't know it's not just the phones it's everything but we're having a nice chat and it's all going to be okay maybe <laughs> <laughs> so uh let's i want to talk about the experience and we, we we were actually discussing this a little bit before we came on of having your latest novel or I've, I, I saw it described two ways novella or novel do you have a preference um I think, you know, the novella has never been technically defined at what length makes it a novella. The book is now, I think, weighs in at, I'm not sure, I think 97 pages. So that doesn't quite feel like a novel. I was frustrated because some, on my Wikipedia page, which I had not looked at or had never changed, my book, which was always a novella at least, was listed as a short story, right? So news articles began to appear based on Jonathan Ames' short story. I'm like, no, that's not a short story. I'm like, where did they get this information? And I realized it was on my own damn Wikipedia page. <laughs> I didn't know how to change it. I had to get someone to change my Wikipedia page because I'm like, if it's listed as a short story in these articles, no one's going to try to find it. You know, how do you find a short story? Right. I don't know. There's, no one's going to even try. Right. But if it's a novella, or, and it's supposed to say based on the book by. Anyway, it's... Right, let's, for convenience sake, we'll say novella, which backwards is Alivon. <laughs> and in terms of um, your intent with it, or at least like maybe your approach creatively, like obviously it's Pulp Fiction, mm. um, which I think lends itself to adaptation better than mm. like literary fiction. Mm -hmm. And I've heard or I read uh, a review of the book where it was described as like it reads almost like a treatment for a film. Mm -hmm. um, meaning that like you can easily visualize, you can mm -hmm. easily see how oh, this, this could be great material for the screen. Was that on your mind as you were writing it? Um, I don't know that. I don't think it was on my mind as I was writing it. Um, I wrote it 
to be a page turner. I had been studying page turners, not so consciously, but just by absorbing so many. And, and I've been really thinking about this notion of the page turner because it's an experience while reading that's kind of physical where you can't stop. Now, a lot of times when you're reading more literary fiction, you're, you're enjoying it, you're in the world, but you can maybe put the book down and you'll pick it up the next night. But sometimes with the page turner, you just can't stop and you have to, you know, really force yourself to stop. And I, so I, I wanted to write something like that. So I was kind of using the tricks of that style that I thought I had perceived. Like what, like what? Um, short paragraphs, um, concise sentences, um, you know, maybe a limited time frame, which also I had learned from TV, you know, have the story take place in 24 hours, you know, the ticking clock linearity creates tension. Um, so just things like that. Um, but it was, it tended to be like a, I, I would say a, a disciplined staccato kind of rhythm to writing. Plus, if you read a ton of those, like you just, inter- I think you just internalize the music of it somehow. Like. Yeah. And, and you don't belabor things, but, and, but I would have fun having moments as of, of flourishes of beautiful descriptions, but like kind of being on a, trying to be on a fast moving train. And so, also, and also, you know, it's like, you have like rich nuanced character at the heart of it. A lot of times I think people think of Pulp Fiction or sometimes people mm. write Pulp Fiction. They don't pay attention to character as much mm. as they do to things like plot, mm-hmm. but you kind of have that mixed background. So you're mm. combining maybe things that you've uh, explored in other uh, books or projects of yours. I mean, did that, do you feel like that made its way in or did you try to like consciously um, p- pair away? Yeah, I, I don't, I don't know. I, I think everything I had learned also came into that moment as well. I mean, it was a new adventure because I was writing in the third person. Um, and I may have broken some rules. Like it was third person omniscient, but then often very close. And, and, and it was kind of my own third person, but I was consistent in my rule breaking <laughs> Um, so that was new cause I'd always written in the first person and kind of relied on being able to adopt a voice. So this was a voice that had to in some ways be, um, uh, more godlike and maybe have less personality, but could have personality in its brevity and in the things it might declare at times. Um, and then I did want to create an interesting central character that I could return to. I'd been reading a lot of Lee Child's Jack Reacher books, you know, and enjoying them, like tearing through a 400 page book, like sometimes in a night, right? Cause and I'd be speed reading them and my primary, uh, like literally it, speed reading or just yeah, like just turn so pages. Like I, I might like throw my eye over a paragraph that I knew might not be as fun. I could, maybe he's talking about tire pressure or something right. like that, you know, in terms <laughs> right. of a speeding vehicle. Right. And I, that stuff doesn't, you know, excite me. So I could skip that, right. you know, I could see, okay, I'm not going to miss much in this paragraph. I don't know. Yeah. But Lee child, if you're listening, I, I loved your books and I got to meet him, which was a real thrill. Um, and then, uh, but, and then Richard Stark, as I've mentioned, a pseudonym for Donald Westlake wrote these, I'm talking about him all the time. He must be spinning in his grave. Who's this kid referencing me all the time? But, uh, not a kid, but thinks he's a kid going back to the aging issue. Um, so, and he had this central character, Parker, 
uh, in these 24 crime novels. And those became movies, uh, Point Blank with Lee Marvin, Payback with Mel Gibson, kind of a famous character. And then also I really loved uh, some David Goodis short stories, which were always written with this kind of mad urgency. Um, so, yeah, I wanted it to be literary, I guess, in a sense, but also a page turner. As soon as I finished it, I felt like there's a movie in it. And I had once, early on, you know, when Francis Ford Coppola started that magazine, Zoetrope. Sure. And I remember I was like early 90s New York, and I don't think I ever got in it, but I met the people involved with it. And the concept that Coppola had was that a lot of times the best movies came from short stories. And I think I think he Rear Window, Hitchcock's Rear Window may have been based on a short story. Because a novel, like you said, there's so much, and there's or a literary novel, like that, it's not going to make it into a 90 minute or 100 minute film, and you've got to dilute and distill, and that's why a lot of times people are let down by the films of novels. But the short story, it's like kind of all there, or, or you can follow that whole thing. And then in the case of you were never really here, you know, the the action all takes place really over you know 24, 36 hours. So, uh, I so there's a structure. Like, I mean, mm-hmm. feel like because like screenplays and uh, writing for film and television, you know, it's a you really have to have the architecture in place. It's a much more defined form than a novel. Yeah, definitely. Like, I I read this novel recently, and you know, and I I think it has potential as a film, but you're going to have to create more of a beginning, middle, and end. Novels can sort of shoot around, and that is the beauty of novels. And you just sort of lose yourself in them like a like a great big meal where maybe sometimes you have the dessert in the middle and then you go back to something savory because your blood sugars drop i don't know <laughs> but um so and so when i finished you were never really here i sent it to my then hollywood film agent i said i think there's a movie in this and i'd done the same thing when i wrote the short story for bored to death and both times when i've sent these things out that i'm like there's a movie in this the hollywood agents r- respond with silence and nothing happens. And then in the case of You Were Never Really Here, um, my agent, which was great, sold this book, which was originally an e-book, as a little crime novel in France. And this French film producer, Rosa Atab, I feel like she doesn't get enough credit in all this, reads it in French, reads the reviews in French. The French really enjoy noir, as we know. And, and uh, why they enjoy noir, I don't know. The French are amazing great food everyone's got a good figure because they're walking a lot i mean good with clothes i feel like they're very yeah. fashionable like, yeah. like i've been in paris before i'm like everyone just like looks so good i know yeah. the french and the italians are wonderful i mean i i think all of europe is really kind of beautiful but that's eurocentric and i've not been to south america and i've not been to asia so i mean you know so i'm i'm limited in what i can say about these things so um anyway but they do dress nicely if if your brain has been shaped by the culture in some way. So anyway, the French like it. And so this French producer got the... It was also published in England as a small crime novel. Got it to Lynn Ramsey. And Lynn responded to it. And who's Lynn's agent? My agent. The same guy who had never responded. But now he was into it as a film because Lynn liked it. Kind he's of no like, longer your agent. He's not. He's not. <laughs> a fine fellow, but... Anyway, uh, so that's how the whole the movie began. And once she expressed interest, and I saw her movies, and we began to communicate, and uh, you know, 
sold the rights to the French company or whatever one does option. And, uh, and then she and I for like two and a half years corresponded and she sent me drafts of the script. She wrote the script. She wrote the script. So, okay. So what was it like, you know, you've run your own television shows Mm -hmm. you've written books where obviously you're the man in control Mm -hmm. to suddenly like relinquish control to a creative collaborator who then it becomes hers. Like, Mm -hmm. is that, how's that process been for you? Um, you know, I, I really loved her movies and I saw that this is like an incredibly strong artist and we began to Skype and I, I've never told her this, but I think I even got a little bit of a crush on her and she was in Greece and I sort of had this fantasy that I would fly to Greece and <laughs> romance would occur. I've never told her this, but, and, and I never made it to Greece. And when I met her finally, two and a half years later, I met her with her the new man in her life and her new baby and everything. It was about 10 days before they were going to start shooting. But we corresponded quite a lot for two and a half years. And I just had a very um, uh, strong attitude of like, let her do her thing. Right Now, the the script really did closely follow the book initially, especially. Like she kind of almost transposed it into final draft. And then with each draft, she began adding things that, hadn't happened in the book or flourishes and, and, and I would give her notes, but I was kind of like, do your thing. And you almost uh, have to though. I mean, like, right. Like what, what do you, I mean, I guess, first of all, it's, it's somewhat rare for a filmmaker to involve the, the author of the book hmm. in the creative process at all. A lot of times yeah. they buy the option and that's it. And it's yeah, like, no, that's true. That you might get an invite to the premiere if you're lucky. <laughs> yeah. I think maybe because I had established myself as a screenwriter, maybe because, um, this was a departure for her to do a thriller. One thing I kept conveying to her is like, I, I wanted the book to be an entertainment, you know, in the Graham Greene sense of like writing an entertainment. Like right. he had the idea of some of his books were entertainments, some of them were high literature. And I thought it would be really cool for her to sort of try to cross over, bring all her artistry, all her painterly brushstrokes in service of a thriller. And she agreed, you know, one of the first films she sent me was the French film Le Samurai about a hitman, which she felt kind of, you know, blended those two um, styles. I think it's a, it's a worthy exercise for artists, I mean, especially like mm. literary artists uh, to consider whether mm. if you're somebody who writes literary fiction, mm. try to write genre. If you're mm. somebody who writes genre fiction, I don't know. It just seems like that would be a good way to strengthen muscles that might need strengthening, or at least it would, even if you go back to the thing you love the most, it would inform that work. Yeah. And I, I, I agree with you. And for me, I don't even know that I make the distinction now or need to, you know what I mean? I would just wanted to write a, i my goal has always been whether it was performing or my column or TV show, I would try to organize my approach that I'm, I want to entertain a stranger, somebody out there, you know what I mean? So like you kind of do the work for yourself because it's enjoyable to use oneself that you, whatever skills you have to focus, to concentrate, that kind of gives you meaning in life. But also what gives you meaning is to try to give to others. And like, I had received so much pleasure from books and felt less alone in the world and learned about the world from books that, you know, I, I would always try to remember, though, of course, sometimes I forget that I'm doing this to try to give something to someone else to contribute to the planet in this way. Um, and so anyway, my goal has always been to entertain. And I don't know that, I mean, maybe I don't know that I used to think, oh, I'm writing high literature or something, though I know one novel, you know, my novel, The Extra Man, structurally, I was kind of 
basing it on the magic mountain which is in my mind high literature you, you know but now I, I don't know what the labels are but i i do think it's a good idea to entertain people forget that mm -hmm. you know like I, I can forget that sometimes like as i'm diving into my own like personal stuff and trying to put it into a book it's like hey there's going to be somebody on the other end of this thing you better make it enjoyable for them even mm -hmm. if it's grappling with like existential stuff or dark stuff or whatever like Ultimately, you have to entertain people if you want them to invest themselves in your narrative. Right. And then, but that's where sometimes little tricks, like my little trick that I'll share out there, and not that it's like I'm, it's not like I'm Stephen King and I'm giving you the keys to the universe <laughs> or something. <laughs> right. But I, years ago, I read this Jean Rice book. I think that's how you pronounce her name, R H Y S. And I didn't necessarily love the book too much, but like I kind of read it speedily and somewhat enjoyably. I, when I say I didn't like it, I, I don't know that something didn't completely fulfill me. And I think I read another of her books, which I really love, but I noticed that she uh, used very short paragraphs. And that's one way to kind of get the reader to kind of just keep going with you. Now, of course, you don't, just can't randomly cut a paragraph in half, but I f find that even the, the experience on the page, like having it di in digestible bits is very helpful. Like there was a, there's a story that I tell when something like this comes up. I, it was like an interview that I read with Don DeLillo. I don't know if this is apocryphal or mm -hmm. not, but I think I, I want to say he says that he mm -hmm. writes in like very big type and that like words are like sculpture to him. Mm -hmm. It's like a very visual process. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And like, that's another thing that maybe people sometimes forget that it, it's a visual, it's a visual, uh, experience for the reader. Mm -hmm. And so the way that the words are laid out on the page is going to have an impact on like how their eyes move. And like mm -hmm. what, if you see a big giant dense block paragraph on a page, like even somebody who loves books and loves to read, sometimes you can go, Oh God. Yeah. Like, and, and that can be, you know, a thing a, a writer's trying to do also really test the reader. Cause some readers like that. It's right. like, okay, I'm going to, you know, if you're reading David Foster Wallace, like he might have really long paragraphs or huge footnotes. And it's like, okay, you want to come with me? You want to come into this consciousness? Let's go. And, right. and people, some people really do love it. Um, but, and then there was that guy, the German writer, was it Thomas Bernhard? Like his whole books would just be one paragraph. And I remember years ago reading one of those and going for it. So for every, you know, trick, there's the opposite, of course. Right. But it is something for people to consider is like just even how it looks on the page and what's pleased you and what's worked for you as a reader, what works for you as a reader, you should keep in mind. And what about, uh, in terms of the adaptation of your, of your novella, uh, the casting call, I mean, you can't mm -hmm. be unhappy with Joaquin Phoenix. He's a great actor, mm -hmm. but like visually, that's always been something I've imagined, mm -hmm. you know, like somebody were to ever adapt a work of mine, like authors got to think about that. Like who would play this? Mm -hmm. Uh, does, does his, did you have any input into the casting? Uh, first of all, um, well, Lynn and I, I remember when we first began collaborating, she sent me some, uh, y you know, some actors, pictures or something like that, but it was very, very early on. And I think as she went forward, she really began to see Joaquin, you know, and I think may have put his face on her screensaver or something like that, which she didn't share with me necessarily. And there was this one actor, his name, I always blank on him. Uh, Tinker Taylor Spy. He's been in a lot of things. He, I don't think his. I don't know if his name is Mark Strong. He's bald, but has like a, a sort of long nose. I, I love his face. But anyway, when I heard it, that Joaquin was interested, she was approaching Joaquin. I'm like, yes, that's incredible. I mean, he he is. And in this film, 
he is so amazing. I mean, he is like, uh, I, I don't know, he's so natural in front of the camera. There seems to be no self-awareness. There's something very authentic mm-hmm. about Joaquin Phoenix. Like, mm-hmm. you know, like, I don't know. There's nothing, there's not that polish or that um, attempt to be who he thinks you want him to be. Yeah, something. And, and there's something very sweet about his discomfort when he does media that I love. Mm-hmm. Like, he really, like, you know, he's very anxious in an, in an endearing way mm-hmm. because I think he wants to uh, be authentic. And he also, I think that there can be something very superficial about the junket process or whatever. Oh, yeah. I mean, that, that's, look, I mean, this is a pleasant interview, but, you know, for actors, and it, it, it can be difficult, and it's, Repetitive, but, they, but they've got to get out there, and he's done a great job of that. I think there's something to his acting style in which I imagine, but I'm I don't know for sure that it's almost like he forgets that he's acting, you know, and that he, he forgets that there's a crew around him or a director, and that all this artifice goes away for him, and um, and it. And I noticed this working on my TV shows, like with Patrick Stewart, that actors really do like make-believe. Um, that that is, I think, a very meditative, enjoyable place for them. Like, I've come to realize, for me, even if I have insecurities about writing, that when I can finally get myself to sit down, get past the fear and the procrastination and the distraction and self-destructive procrastination then I'm really happy to be at the laptop trying to make sentences. I, It's like a very nice place for me. Everyone's got that. Some people, it's cooking, gardening, or, you know, the various, their jobs or vocations. And I think for actors, it's the vocation of make-believe. And they really enjoy make-believe. Like Patrick Stewart, you know, fantastic actor, incredibly well-trained, Shakespearean, can memorize huge plays, and you know. Can they memorize quickly? That's always been mm. a question of mine. Like, you get them a script, like, in, in a night, can they mm. do it overnight, you know? like um, I think Patrick Stewart could, um, and and the, and that's part of their job. They force themselves to memorize. Now, other some actors are better than others, but um, Ted Danson always knew his lines. You know, they just must... That must just be something they learn. And but and so there's just a joy in make-believe. I get that. That's yeah. got to be fun. I mean, yeah. like, if you're really in it and, like, you, you know, you almost mm. trick yourself into believing that you're there and that you're this person, mm. sort of forget yourself a little bit. Yeah, I, so I think that must be what happens to him. But then there's also a part of you which is directing yourself or you you know you just you you're becoming this person... Or you're just real in the moment. Anyway, I was thrilled by his being cast, thrilled by his performance, um, and thrilled by her directing. I, I think the two of them are just really brilliant and took my little novella and have made just uh, a really interesting, strong piece of cinematic art. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. And you're going to keep working with this character. Yeah. And interesting that you like, and other people have asked me this. So I, I started the sequel a while ago. I'm pretty deep into it. But I don't see Joaquin as I'm writing it. I'm still seeing the guy that I kind of pictured in my head when I began it a while ago. What does he look like? Well, <clears throat> uh, he's, kind of, he's he's tall and lean. I, I would have to say 
in a way, he's some Italian, because I'd say he's Italian and Irish, version of myself. It's almost like myself in a funhouse mirror, but tough. Right. Like, it's more like a tough house mirror. Right. <laughs> like, I took some version of myself and made this tough human being who feels like a brother. So when I'm in his body, like right now I'm in the sequel, he's down in Philadelphia in this horrible weather. I, I sort of feel I'm walking through him almost like must be the way I have not done any of these virtual reality games, but you see these people with these helmets on or whatever they're, and they're moving. I feel like as I'm writing, I'm moving in this guy. Yeah. And so he's, he's some ver hero tormented version of myself, but he, he does look different though too, you know, that's um, funny. It's interesting. I was kind of thinking about that when it comes to like casting, um, <clears throat> in an adaptation of your, uh, literary work, like what is elevated in importance, you know, that the actor who winds up playing the role match your imagined version of that character or <laughs> that the actor who um, is cast in that role is able to really nail the emotional specifics mm. of the narrative or, you know, that the narrative calls for. It seems like the mm. latter would be more important. But yeah. I, yeah. I don't, I mean, unless like the physicality is some essential part of the character. I mean, like Joaquin, I feel like is just, his own version of this guy. And it's such a cool version. Just as like, I wanted Lynn, all right, you make your thing. You know, he made this character his own. And, um, but, and, but I just flashed like Kevin Klein played the lead in the adaptation of my book, the extra man. And he bore some resemblance to, well, the real life person I based the character on in a sense and though that character looked maybe a little bit more like a cross between Dirk Bogard and Richard Burton. But um, but in in that sense, it was kind of great that Kevin Klein had that look that went, that fit for me. Right. And that was a more personal book to me. Um, and this was this like genre piece that I'd written somewhat quickly. And so I was somewhat less emotionally attached. So I didn't need the guy to look exactly like him. But Joaquin... You know, I mean, it was like hitting a grand slam, two grand slams and one at bat. Right. Getting him. Uh, it sounds like because you, you mentioned earlier that you don't watch a lot of television, but I'm hearing you drop a lot of cinematic references. Mm -hmm. So you're very cinema literate. You love movies. You watch a lot of movies. Well, I have to say I don't watch a lot of movies either, but I think over the course of being alive, you know, 54 years now and a lot of channel surfing <clears throat> and the... You know, and I think there was a time when you watched movies more on TV, you know, like when they'd be shown late at night or, you know, Turner Classic Channel or didn't AMC used to show like a lot of great movies <laughs> um, and then going to the movie theater, of course. So I've definitely enjoyed films. That was more of like uh, a treat than what nourished me the way books nourish me. But I certainly saw, have seen a lot of movies in my life, but I don't consider myself a cinephile and there's a lot of movies I haven't seen, but, um, but I, I have, and then making television, I, I really enjoyed stealing moments from cinema. When I say stealing, all artists borrow or are inspired by sure. or make homage or illusion. 
So it was really fun as I got more into TV making, which I did enjoy tremendously, was what a fun visual medium it was. And it was really fun to try to <clears throat> pull off cool-looking things in my shows. Um, and uh, I, got, I took a lot of pleasure in that. Have you done uh, feature film work <clears throat> or just TV? Um, I, I actually wrote the screenplay for The Extra Man, and then the directors worked on the screenplay also. So I do have a, a film screenplay credit, but I had written that script on spec years ago, and then once the directors had it, you know, like they kind of did their own thing. So I didn't, uh, you know, I didn't necessarily like see it from start to finish or something like that. But I, but I, so I did write one movie and, um, but yeah, I haven't, I think movie scripts are really hard to write. I've actually written quite a few, none of which either I wrote one. Yeah. Yeah. Just they're hard. Movies are hard because you have like a hundred minutes or 90 minutes. On one hand, you really want to get to know the characters and yet you got to keep the story moving. And, and I kind of learned how to write TV and 30 minute episodes, but I had like eight or 10 episodes for people to really come to love these characters. And you didn't have to do like necessarily the, the super fast gesture that summed up a character so quickly. That's where Lynn Ramsey's so brilliant that she knew how with small gestures for us to feel that we know Joaquin, that we know the character Joe he's playing. And I think that's something I haven't fully grasped in terms of trying to write a successful film, that somehow it, it, it feels like too quick and you don't fall in love with the people in the same way. It's a real science to write a good movie, I think. But I feel like with the with the sequel that you're writing and mm -hmm. with this turn to pulp fiction, genre mm -hmm. fiction, whatever, mm -hmm. you know, that you could be headed in that direction. This could be like another mm -hmm. penny in the in mm -hmm. the road for you. Like if you're if you're mastering the page turner and you've got this great mm -hmm. character that people are going to be introduced to or, or have been introduced to now, mm -hmm. uh, there could be a moment down the road where you you write and direct and adapt your own films yeah i've been thinking of that and it's been brought up which is like flattering of course and directing has scared me even though as a showrunner i kind of oversaw the directors there's there's a mathematical element to directing that has intimidated me you know like a director comes into this room and let's say you're shooting not in a set right and so you got to quickly figure out all right where can you put the camera how can you lighting how can you get both people and that I would need a cinematographer to break all that down for me. And then those choices, though, become very important. You know, how you film people and then the references. Like, they they study how Hitchcock or Truffaut or Spielberg attack the most simple scenes, you know. So I would be very reliant on a DP that way. I mean, I and when I wrote my scripts for Blown Talking Bored to Death, I wrote them with visual intent to give the directors like fun stuff to do. And, and sometimes I might be, you know, could describe certain kinds of shots, but anyway, I, that would be amazing to try that someday. Being a showrunner is kind of like being a director. Um, and yeah, I, I'm, but I still feel like my strength, at least right now with the page turner is in writing it as prose but then maybe the next one I might, maybe I would try to write myself. And then, um, 
But, you know, I almost love for Lynn to do the sequel and Joaquin to do the sequel. Yeah. The thing is, my book ends differently than the movie does. I had sent Lynn the first 10 pages of the sequel, uh, and that has sort of informed her ending. So I hope it'll be all right that my the new book begins where the old book ends and... I don't know. It'll all work out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And what is it like? What does your uh, writing ritual look like? Do you have a mm. ritual? Are you somebody who's pretty methodical mm. about how you, like, you get up in the mm. morning, you make mm. your coffee, you sit down? Mm. Yeah. Well, um, I I tend to do certain life things in the morning, like uh, psychoanalysis, <laughs> um, and you know, conceivably, I could be at my desk by eleven a.m. every day. And, and now that I've been writing prose again, you know, and you have to set your own schedule. When I was writing for TV, there were deadlines and I could procrastinate, but I could procrastinate only so much or I was going to start getting in trouble. Sure. <laughs> you know, and um, but so every day I could start by 11. I feel like most days I'm lucky if I start by 3.30. I take a nap. I, I don't know. I fret. I, 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 you got to go through that stuff. Though. Like it's crazy. Yeah. And then and then. If I can get four hours of sitting at the desk from like three thirty to seven thirty eight, that's good. That makes me feel good to hear you say that because mm -hmm. there's so many writers I talk to who they're like five thirty a.m. to ten thirty is my window, and the truth is, like, I can get up early, mm -hmm. but I'm not really creative until mm -hmm. like afternoon. Yeah, and, and get, I, what am I supposed to do? I can't like force it, you know. I know. I read, like I said, I nap. I I don't know. I do everything but try to sit down. And then finally, I'm like, oh, my God, I'm going to blow the whole day. And, you know, a lot of coffee. <laughs> yeah. And sometimes, you know, I hope my parents don't hear this, even though I'm middle-aged and <laughs> ready for Social Security. <laughs> it's just, so some coffee and some marijuana, the two combined together help me overcome the fear of failure. Or right. Fear of trying or something. There's a lot of fear and self-doubt. And then you sit down. And, uh, yeah, no, I, I'm not, I wish I could get up early. I mean, I, I, every day I'm like, I'm going to get up early and tackle my emails. I have like such a pileup of emails. It's going crazy. And I know people that I have neglected, you know, I have emails going back six years now <laughs> and I'm not, I'm not that bad. <laughs> oh, well, I just, I have it piled up like I'm a hoarder and I have hoarding issues in the physical realm and in the virtual what well, you get attached to like what it's like an emotional attachment to objects and well it's not an emotional attachment it's some kind of laziness denial and indecisiveness i should throw out this plastic hanukkah dreidel that someone <laughs> gave me but oh god it's more plastic well i'll just keep it on my bureau for three years and you know yeah but yeah. then i i've written about this there's a, a philip k dick principle in do androids dream of electric sheep it's called kipple and that of course famously became blade runner but the notion of kipple was not in the ridley scott films but kipple is basically like i said that hanukkah dreidel which i will never use right if you don't throw that away immediately in the philip k dick universe it will double overnight and it's called kipple. kipple yeah or okay. like you put like a, a you know a pellegrino metal top to a bottle in your pocket put that on your dresser if you don't throw that it'll double so in the that universe the whole world was moving towards a total and absolute state of kippleization where the inessential was replacing the essential and that's what happened to and i wrote about this to me and i see it somewhere on the spectrum of hoarding 
was not emotional attachment. It was like I was not throwing away the kipple fast enough. And in 21st century America, we have a lot of kipple. Yeah. The, the p- packaging, the waste, the plastic. Oh God, I mean, yeah. it's, it's horrific what we're doing to the environment. And so I just get overwhelmed with kipple. And and I even like the word because that's what it feels like. It's like kipple. It's it like, says it's, what it is. Kinda. Yeah, yeah. It's almost like Yiddish. It sounds yeah. like Yiddish, and the way Yiddish words express themselves through their sound, it's detritus. And so I have email kipple. I have physical kipple. I live in this new. I rent a house in L.A. And I fled my apartment in New York with two bags. The kipple was so great. I, in science fiction, I would have just gotten attached to one of the walls as things grew around me. <laughs> but I sort of fled and went back a few times over three years. It was like returning to like a dusty diorama of my former life. And the sheets would smell of dust. And it was kind of wretched. But then I pared it all down with the help of a professional, professional dehoarder, And then shipped was it, it all was to it LA. Like Marie, what's her name? Uh... The woman who wrote uh, the book about decluttering. I know. Marie yeah. Kondo or whatever. Yeah, I haven't read it. I'm afraid to read it. I read it and I got like super fired up for like a week and then I tailed off. I was like, I'm, gonna, I'm only going to keep clothes that I like. And uh, I know. And, and it's supposed to be something. You only keep it if it brings you joy. Someone said to me, and I don't know if they'll hear this, they, they kind of said, you know, I read the book, you know, where you only dis- don't discard something that brings you joy. And then she re- referred to me as something that, that gave her joy, but that she had to discard. <laughs> and I, so I've like, had a prejudice against that book ever since. It's, I mean, yeah, it's a lot of work. I mean, you really, yeah, it's one of those things where I'm like, can some, somebody did it for me or we'd come mm-hmm. in and. Well, I hired someone, a great woman. She had been the assistant to Frank Miller, uh, the creator of um, oh. all sorts of comic books and right. all sorts of things. And so she was used to creative, eccentric people. And she's a great woman and an artist herself. And she came into my apartment in Brooklyn. And I worked with her for like six days and two different stretches. And what's she doing? She's like just pointing at things like how much, like, can we throw you? this out? I'm like, yeah, let's throw it out. Let's throw it out. And then I had, you know, probably 1,200 books and I pared it down to about, four or 500, you know, and I shipped all my books to LA. Now, most of my old New York kipple, which got cut down by about 75%, but still is at a fairly high amount. And, you know, from a writer's life, there's also reviews of things and manuscripts and uh-huh. journals yeah, and, yeah. you know, pictures and all this stuff from life. And so it's now all in a garage now for 18 months like that. I'm not dealing with it. And, and just, you know, it's like a carbuncle yeah. and, uh, I don't know. So, we all have these things. I mean, like, I'm, you know, looking around this room and, you know, you've got kipples, not too bad, but you've got a family. Like, you got all those envelopes up there. You've got we, a couple open, of empty bottles. If we open the know. drawers, it would be, uh, you oh. know, it's like all of a sudden you open Oh, the like, drawers are the worst. <laughs> like, I've got these cabinets in my kitchen. Yeah. I got these, because I, I have a dog and I got these plastic bags. And on the label of the plastic bags, it says, lower your dog's you know, carbon footprint. And I'm thinking, okay, great. These are biodegradable bags. No, it was a total ripoff of marking, meaning their poop was the carbon footprint. So I'm meanwhile taking this biodegradable poop, right. putting it in a plastic bag right. that will last <laughs> several millennia yeah, right. and throwing it into the ocean to be swallowed by a dolphin. Yeah. So now I don't want to use these plastic bags anymore. So I kind of shove them in a cabinet in the kitchen. You got, but you got, uh, you got biodegradable yeah, so I got the yeah. biodegradable ones out. Mostly I just try to, if no one's looking, just let them 
crap and then quickly move on, right. you know, because <laughs> how biodegradable are those biodegradable bags? Oh, yeah, but anyway, but you know, drawers, cabinets, I, I, I need to decipolize my house again. Yeah. And, and before I let you go, uh, mm. a couple things. things. So usually I talk to people, I find out like where they're from. We haven't mm. even gotten there. We've mm-hmm. had, I've had so many things to mm. ask you about mm. your career. Uh, are you from the East Coast originally? Yeah, I was born in New York City, Babies Hospital in Manhattan, March 23rd, 1964. My social security is 140. No, I won't go that far. <laughs> um, and then I was raised in northern New Jersey. But I, I guess there were hospitals, but my parents still felt more secure with the New York hospital. They they were from Brooklyn. I've heard that before. Uh, maybe Lynn Tillman who was just in here told me that that was a similar thing. Yeah. Where like she was born in the New York hospital. Like you yeah, go in there to get yeah, that there, I think there was a hospital in Bergen County where I grew up, but maybe there wasn't. And we were only about 25 minutes from the city, maybe 30 minutes back then. There was probably less traffic. Um, and amazingly, they the lake that they use, and you were never really here, the film, was in my hometown. Huh. By chance, the location person found a lake of all the thousands of lakes in the very wet New York metropolitan area. They found a lake in my hometown. No kidding. So I grew up yeah, in this little town called Oakland, New Jersey, about 30 minutes outside of New York, kind of a New York metropolitan area person, you know, New York newspapers, New York television stations. And then, uh, and then lived in New York itself. And then I, I went to Princeton, and then I ended up living in that town for a number of years. So you were a good student. You were a smart... Uh, I, I was a good student. I was a little bit probably like a Donald Trump student in that, I don't know, I kind of slide by at times or hand in things really late or I don't know. Like I, I was good at what I was good at, which were English courses. Everything else I wasn't so good at. But I got into Princeton because I excelled at fencing, and the fencing coach (coughs) wanted me. And my grades were good enough, (coughs) and I was the editor of the school paper. It was my high school English teacher that got me into being a writer. And you were into fencing in high school? Yeah, because, again, northern New Jersey, there were a lot of uh, immigrants from Eastern Europe and former Soviet Union. Oh, right. So, and and Hungary, which was a big sport of fencing. And so there were all these European fencing coaches that, you know, in the 60s and 70s started having fencing teams on high school. It's interesting to hear you say that because I'm thinking back to my childhood and my early childhood in Milwaukee. Mm -hmm. Because I I kind of split my childhood between Milwaukee and Indiana. Where in Indiana? Because I I spent a year in Bloomington teaching at IU. Oh, no shit. I grew up in like suburban Indianapolis or Mm -hmm. went to high school there. Mm Mm-hmm. But in Milwaukee, which is like this Germanic and Scandinavian, you know, that's largely the, mm. the it was settled by those uh, mm. people. Uh, soccer was the sport. Mm. And then I went and to hockey the, too, maybe, or yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, but I mean, soccer, I mean, mm. just remember soccer was like the thing, mm. like in my the high school that I would have gone to. And mm-hmm. I went down to Indiana and I was like baffled, but of course it's basketball there. And mm-hmm. just interesting to think of how. You know, the people who wind up settling the region and the roots that they put down, those things have a huge impact on the culture. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, it changed my life because I probably wouldn't have gone to Princeton without fencing. Yeah. So thanks to some immigrant to the East Coast who was a fencer who got fencing <laughs> in New Jersey high schools, so yeah. I ended up at Princeton, you know, got to study with Joyce Carol Oates. And then I lived in Princeton for a few years after graduation trying to finish my first novel. Did and, you like Princeton, like the experience of Ivy League school and like being among all those other, like, you know, because that's a pretty intense, competitive environment. Um, I liked it very much. A lot of my peers didn't because I tended to be with 
the artists and the left wing people and the gender you know uh the liquid gender people i don't know how to say it politically <laughs> correct but um but i liked it because the place was like a fantasy it was like it was like castles everywhere yeah. and but it was a struggle i had to join rotc to pay for school which turned out to be a huge mistake uh, because i was not at all cut out for the military I, yeah, I, I don't get that sense. I, I don't almost, get that sense. I almost vomited the first time I put on the uniform. I was like, oh, my God, I've made such a huge mistake. Because the first year I had some scholarship money, and then, the, and then there was going to be none. My sister was going to medical school, so I joined the Army without telling my parents and signed away the next 12 years of my life, like three years of Princeton as being an ROTC and having to be in uniform twice a week. And then uh, every one weekend a month, we'd go off somewhere and sleep in the woods and do drills, all of which I was terrible at. Couldn't build a tent. I couldn't read a map. Couldn't do anything. Couldn't march. And my name's Aim, so I was in the far <laughs> left corner. And everyone would kind of go off of me. And I'd, they'd be, you're left, you're left, you're military left. And I'd be like, ah. And my right would be shooting out. And I'd be scorned. Um, but I was good at push-ups, which was important. Anyway, I became a conscientious objector. But th that sort of made my Princeton experience a bit tough because first I'm in the army, then I had to get out of the army and it was a whole ordeal. But overall, I, I really, I would say I loved it and was exposed to really brilliant, interesting people Sure, and opened my mind. I kind of came from a, a nice little town in New Jersey. Your parents, creative people, like where, where do you get it from? Um, my dad was a traveling salesman, very much, uh, I don't want to say he was a Willie Loman figure, but it was a bit of that. And my mom was a teacher, but she's, she was also, they're both big readers. And the one thing I was indulged in was books. I couldn't necessarily buy records or, you know, f anything fancy, you know, bicycles or anything like that. But I mean, I could get a used bicycle, which was nice to, but, um, but books, like it seemed like there was no budget when it came to books. And I think that shaped my life, but my mom's a poet and for the last 30 or 40 years, she's been writing poetry, and I got someone to help her, and we gathered all her poetry, and I'm, I'm self-publishing her first volume of poetry. So she said there's more than one. It's already 198 pages, but they're really strong. And What's it's like her name? Florence Ames. Okay. And Let's plug mom. Well, it's not out there yet, but and I don't know if I'll put it on Amazon. We're just going to print 90 copies that she can give to friends, but it looks like a real book, and it's really good. And and she had published in some New Jersey anthologies because she would take these classes and her teachers would like her poems. So she's in there with like New Yorker poets and these di different Patterson anthologies. Patterson's kind of a, a hub of poetry because Allen Ginsberg grew up there. Oh, right. And I used to deliver the Patterson Evening News. And obviously William Carlos Williams wrote a famously long poem called Patterson. Um, but anyway, yeah, that's my roots. New Jersey, my mom is a writer. My dad's a voracious reader. And they're still with us? Yes. Wow. Yes, and your sister's a doctor? Yeah, she's a doctor, lives out here in Los Angeles. No kidding. Yeah, so um, we're all out here now. And after being in New York my whole life, I really have come to enjoy L.A. Um, you know, I always lived in tiny apartments in New York for 30 years or more. And sort of nice to have a house this way. Like, I'm not as as aware of the kipple because it's, like, more spread it's out. Right. You it's know? diffuse. It's yeah. <laughs> so. Well, it's such a pleasure to meet you. And uh, to get a chance to learn about your life and your career, I appreciate you making the time. I congratulate you on uh, all the success that you've had, especially with the novella, with its mm. sequel, and with the movie. Well, thank you, and it's been nice chatting with you. All right, folks, that's Jonathan Ames. 
The book is called You Were Never Really Here, available now from Vintage. It is also a major motion picture. Go check it out. You Were Never Really Here by Jonathan Ames. Go get your copy. If you want to follow Jonathan on Twitter, his handle is at Jonathan Ames. If you want to follow uh, this podcast on Twitter, it's at OtherPPL. The website for this show is uh, OtherPPL.com. Don't forget about the Other People app. This show has its own official app. It's free. Everything's free. All episodes, more than 500 and counting, are free. You can stream the show on Spotify. Did you know that? That's a new development. You can listen on Stitcher. You can listen on iHeartRadio. You can listen just about anywhere. Like whatever podcast service you use. Thanks to Kill Rockstars for the theme song music, the band Stereo Total. Thanks to uh, Cigarette Royalty for the interstitial music. If you would like to write to me, the address is letters at otherppl.com, letters at otherppl.com. Let me know what you think. Tell me a story. Say something. The truth is then, it, you know, maybe I can't go back to the Thai restaurant just because I feel like that was a period of my life. Like that job, that restaurant, it's blocked off. It's over now. Can't go back. would be too painful (laughs) maybe maybe I will maybe I'm being a dick maybe I should go in and have a meal and bring my family explain myself but now I feel like they're gonna be mad at me I abandoned them it's not it's like really not intentional I'm not trying to mess with people just life goes on it's like a dream (laughs) 